How is everybody? Good, yeah, it was awesome, good. So those of you doing the fast, everyone's still alive, you've made it, right? <laughs> we, still, we still got a long ways to go, right? <laughs> it's only been a week. Um, it's neat though, uh, you can tell a difference in the atmosphere at church when there's a large number of people who are praying and fasting. And uh, it's good, it's really, really good. Um, so Josh up here, he was a new guy on stage, he's working at the church now, and um, he's a pastoral intern, and when we hired him, we didn't know he could sing. <laughs> Just kind of a bonus, and I'm like, wow, I accidentally hired John Legend, you know, like, that's, uh, <laughs> it was, was kind of cool, a wonderful voice. He's a great guy. If you haven't met Josh yet, uh, super nice guy, and uh, make sure you say hi to him, and super humble, good dude, and um, he's going to plant a church in Antioch, and so uh, he's working on that right now. Yeah, so that's cool, and... Um, we're going to hope to work with him for at least a year and, and see what he's going to do, so be good. All right, so if you're new to the church, if you've only come in the last couple of weeks or if today's your first time, um, you've never got to see kind of what we do on a normal basis, which is pick a book of the Bible and go through every single word of it, right? Line by line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, this is what we do. We started the book of Acts months ago, I guess about four months ago, something like that, and we're only about halfway through it, literally. We're right in the middle of it. We're in chapter 14, and there's 28 chapters of the book of Acts, and uh, so we're picking back up. Took a couple of breaks. We had Advent service. We had a lesson on communion and fasting and prayer, but now we are back into the book of Acts. So if you're new, if you have a Bible, it's the fifth book of the New Testament, it's the 14th chapter is what we're going to be on today. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. If for some reason you missed that, if you have a smartphone, the version app, Y-O-U version app, all the notes and everything is on there, including in Spanish. If you need it in Spanish or if you just want to brush up on your Spanish, it's all in Spanish as well, and it is there. So, um, And that's another cool announcement. I didn't announce it the other one. We will be launching a Spanish church in the chapel at 1 o'clock on Sundays, I think in April. So if you know anyone who uh, is predominantly, yeah, so that's exciting too. A lot going on, um, which is good. It's cool. It's good. It's good. So if you haven't been with us, a couple of weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 13, we concluded that and we ended with this kind of idea. The idea was, what are we willing to do? What are we willing to lay down? What are we willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of God? Because at the end of chapter 13, our friends Paul and Barnabas and the other guys they were traveling with they didn't have a whole lot of, uh, it wasn't a good reception in the last town they were in. It says they had to knock the dust off their feet and they had to leave and they had to go somewhere else. And they had to make some sacrifices and some hard choices, but they did that for the kingdom of God, okay? Today we're gonna talk about this as we do all of chapter 14. We're gonna talk about during the seasons of life, are we asking God what he's trying to teach us? And we'll get back to this at the end. We're all in different seasons in life, some of them good seasons, some of them stressful seasons, hardworking seasons, restful times, whatever the case may be, we are in different seasons. And in those moments, we need to be wise enough to look up and say, God, what do you need me to figure out? What do you need me to learn during this time? Okay, so we'll get back to that idea at the end. Now, if you've not been with us at all or you've just forgotten, because it's been a couple of weeks, here's where we are in the story of Acts. If you look at this map, Modern-day Israel is down here where Jerusalem is. That's where Christianity started, okay? They weren't called Christians yet, but that's where the church officially started. 
the church stayed there and it grew and blossomed and was, was doing very, very well. Literally tens of thousands of Christians in Jerusalem. But several ministers had moved up north into what is modern day Turkey. So if this map had all the listing on it, if you go up from Jerusalem, you'd have modern day Lebanon, you'd have Syria to the right of that, and then up north would be Turkey. So the last couple of chapters have taken place in modern day Turkey. As they leave from Antioch, they travel to the island of Cyprus, minister there, travel back into, uh, into Turkey in what at the time was called the area of Galatia, right, which is where the book of Galatians was written to. A lot of the New Testament focuses on churches in what is modern day Turkey, but that's where we're at in the story. And today they're gonna be in a city called Iconium. It is their last stop before they kind of backtrack and the mission is over, okay? So we're at the last part of the first missionary journey of Paul and his companions, all right? So again, you should have a notes handout. Everything's in there. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna dive into this and we'll talk about seasons, all right? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. I wanna tell you thank you, Lord. I wanna tell you thank you, God, for all the men and women in this room who are fasting, who are laying things aside, focusing on you, God. We could obviously tell a difference this morning. Thank you for that, Lord. God, I wanna tell you thank you, Lord, uh, just that we're all in here today that we have decent weather, God, that we've been able to come into this place and worship together. Thank you for that. Lord, if there's any non-believers in this room, I, I pray that they feel welcomed. I pray that uh, they come in with an open mind and that they'll come back and keep searching. God, we pray for every church in our community. We pray for all the nonprofits, especially in slavery that we're working with this month, God, and pray, Lord, that your kingdom advances in our area and all over, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 14th chapter of the fifth book of the New Testament. I'm going to read a little bit, and I will do my best to break it down. Here we go. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and some siding with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian towns of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside. There they continued preaching the gospel. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Iconium because most of you probably don't know much about it. I didn't know much about it until a couple of weeks ago. Iconium was a city, a big city, that was very wealthy and very beautiful. And it was predominantly Greek. They had avoided a lot of Roman influence, even though it was under Roman rule. It was heavily Greek, okay? So here the missionaries did what they would always do when they would go into a city. They went into the Jewish synagogue. They would first minister to the Jewish people. And after they had ministered to the Jewish people, they would move on to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, okay? So in the area before Iconium, an area called Poseidia, they had moved on from reaching out to the Jews. The Jews rejected them. And so they basically washed their hands of the Jews in the town before Iconium. Now that does not mean that they washed their hands of the Jews altogether because we see in this town, 
They go back to their normal protocol, start off by talking to the Jewish people, and then move on to the non-Jewish people, okay? So also like in previous towns, it wasn't the the Gentiles, the non-Jews that pushed back against them. It was the Jews that heard the truth but did not believe in the truth. So here, Luke records that the non-believing Jews poisoned the minds of the Greeks, right? Slander, gossip, talking bad about the Christians in order for people not to listen to them. But here's what's interesting. Versus the last town they were in where it says literally they knocked the dust off their feet and they moved on. In this town, instead of leaving because of the opposition, they said, we're going to stay longer. We're going to dig our heels in and we're going to really kind of not push back and be combative, but we're going to push through this and keep teaching the truth. It says they stayed and they spoke boldly. So persecution, instead of giving them a reason to leave, persecution gave them a reason to stay. And God, it said, testified to the message by giving them the ability to do signs and wonders. Now, this is often an uncomfortable topic for people in Christianity. Now, here's the thing. I believe in the miraculous. I've seen the miraculous. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in all the different things that are mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all that. I believe in the miraculous and the supernatural. When one studies the book of Acts, it appears to be that there was more blatant and obvious miracles done in public at that time than there is now. Why? Is that because God has changed or because God still doesn't do the miraculous? No, that's not it. But they were lacking something in their time that we do have. They did not have the completed word of God. So there had to be signs and wonders or people wouldn't have believed. We have the, the, the completed Holy Bible, which gives us a tool that no one else has had in the, in the times of the Bible. And so again, miracles still happen today. The miraculous and the supernatural still take place. But in this humble guy's opinion, I think the reason why we don't see it with as much blatancy and frequency is because we have this, okay? Doesn't mean God's changed. Doesn't mean that good things don't happen anymore. So they stayed in this area for, it says, a quote-unquote long time. They stayed in Iconium, and uh, uh, they eventually found it time to leave because they had done all they could do, and now it is time to go. So the persecution grew from people just talking bad about them, right? They're writing mean Facebook messages about them. It moved from that. At all four services, no one laughed. But that's, that's a joke, right? There was no Facebook in this time, right? It was a bad joke. I should have learned that after like, like, like group three, you know, like maybe I shouldn't tell this at the fourth meeting. So anyways, because of the majority rejection of the gospel, he said it's time to go. So it moved from them talking bad about them to where they were wanting to mistreat and stone them, which means they wanted to kill these people. So they said, well, it's time to go, right? So they head off into the countryside and they go to more rural areas to share the gospel. Now, here's what's interesting. These were a rejected group of men. In almost every town they went to, they were heavily rejected. So you have these rejected disciples that are representing a rejected Savior. Now, this comes into stark contrast from the majority of the Christian leaders in churches today. The objective of the original Christian leaders wasn't to get involved in politics It wasn't to be influential in society. It wasn't popularity in media. It wasn't to obtain wealth. Their objective was to simply tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if I can kind of like 
not be super sarcastic because I told you I left that in last year, right? Maybe it is time for the church to get away from worrying about how cool and popular and accepted and political we can be, and maybe church leaders should just get back to telling people about Jesus. Right? Okay, we're in agreement on that. Good. Awesome. Next part. So in Lystra, a man who was sitting who did not have strength in his feet had never walked and had been lame from birth. He was listening as Paul spoke, and after looking directly at him and seeing that the man had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and he began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. Okay, so they left Iconium because there was threats of being killed, right? They're like, we got to get out of here. This is bad. So they jump out of Iconium, right? And they head down to an area called Lystra that's going to end up being much, much worse. So when they get to Lystra, here's what's interesting about the area of Lystra. Lystra was a retirement community, not just for anyone. It was a retirement community for former Roman soldiers. And so they go into this area. It is, it is predominantly full of Roman military vets, right? They go into this area. There is no Jewish synagogue. There is no passive Greek philosophy. I don't know how much you guys know about Greek and Roman history. The Greeks and modern, if Greeks were alive now, Greeks would be hanging out in coffee shops asking big philosophical questions. That's what the Greeks did, right? They like to sit around. They're the ones that gave us philosophy, right? So they would sit around. They would ponder things. They would talk about things. They're pretty passive people. The Romans, on the other hand, could have cared less about philosophy. They conquered. So here we have a bunch of Roman soldiers, right? These old vets who had retired and they had fought for the glory of Rome. And here comes the Christians, right? So Paul goes in and we see something miraculous right off the bat. Paul is preaching a message and obviously he's preaching in such a manner. This is important. He's speaking in such a manner to where he's not speaking above these military vets. And this is in no way disrespectful to vets in this room. But he was speaking to a group of, of, of men and women who were not formally educated. They were soldiers. They went out and they fought. And Paul spoke in a way to where it obviously hit home with some of them. Because there was a man that had been, been lame from birth that heard the message and was like, I get it. I believe and so he accepted the gospel and he was healed. Now, an important lesson that we take from that is this. Whenever people say, well, I'm just not smart enough to understand the Bible, that's not true. Billy Graham said one time that you can give the most uneducated, unlearned person a copy of the scripture, put them in a way in a room, give them enough time to read it, and anyone can at least have a rudimentary knowledge of the Bible and the gospel. Anyone can get the overall story of the Bible. And we see that Paul could teach it in such a way to where brilliant people could get it, like the Greeks in Athens that he'll later minister to, and these retired soldiers could get it as well. So the response to this miracle was nuts, right? 
Lame guy gets up, starts walking around, right? He's walking around, he's been miraculously healed. And so the Christians have gotten a lot of crazy responses to the miracles, never one like this. When he gets healed, everyone's like, oh my goodness, Zeus and Hermes have come down from the heavens and they're hanging out in our small town, right? And they have just healed this man. And so here's what's fascinating. They're talking in a local language. So Paul probably would have been able to speak four or five different languages, but he had no idea what they were saying, but he could pick up on Zeus and he could pick up on Hermes, right? And then when they start bringing out gifts and they wanna offer sacrifices, and the priest of Zeus comes out with these bulls, right, ready to kill them for these gods who had come down to earth to visit them, they're like, oh, wait a second, we need to stop this, right? This is not okay. So let's see what happens. So the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, tore their robes when they heard this, and they rushed into the crowd, shouting, people, why are you doing these things? We are people just like you, and we are proclaiming the good news to you that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to go their own way, although he didn't leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, and filling you with food, and your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they could barely stop the crowds from sacrificing to them. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won the crowds over, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up, went into the town, and the next day he left with Barnabas for an area called Derby, okay? So here's what essentially has happened. It has gone from these people thinking they were gods to we want to kill you. Very, very extreme, right? Very, very big, wild mood swings here, right? So when Paul and Barnabas realize what is happening, they think we're gods. They tore their robes. This was a Jewish thing to symbolize that they were in pain or sorrow or that they were very, very upset about something. So they, they rip their robes and they say, hey, stop doing what you're doing. And Paul made it very clear. He first made it clear. He said, look, we're just normal guys, just like you. We're normal. And there's only one God. So you guys keep thinking that there's two gods right here. There's, there's only one God. And he said, it's worthless for you to worship anything except for the one God, right? So they're very, very clear about this. Now, the majority of the world at this time, the reason why this is important is the majority of the world at this time was polytheistic. What that means is they believed in lots of gods, right? Not just one, they believe in lots. I put especially Romans because Romans were very politically correct when it came to religion. There's kind of this misconception that Christians were always just treated poorly in Rome. There were times when Christians were treated very, very poorly in Rome, killed, executed, persecuted in a bad way. But for the most part, Christians were accepted in Rome because Romans were so politically correct See if this sounds familiar to any current day uh, uh, countries. They were so politically correct that they would never tell anyone that their religion was wrong. So they would let all religions in. Very, very polytheistic. Yeah, that's fine. You worship Jesus. You can worship Jesus, but you need to worship all these other gods as well. So everywhere the Christians went, they were offensive in the fact that they said there's not a multitude of gods. There's only one. 
one creator who made the heavens, he made the sea, he made the earth, where they would have a God for all of those things. And there was, no, it's just one. One did all of this. So the Christians taught the exclusivity of Jesus. Now we say, well, Corey, what's the big deal there? We live in a time right now where there's a lot of Christians who are afraid to say there's one pathway to heaven. Do you know why it's important that Christians are clear about that? Because Jesus says there is one way to the Father through me. There is one way to get to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. Will that offend some people? Yes. And more and more so, as we get into more of a pluralistic, relativistic society, it will offend more people. Listen, every Christian in this room, if you believe Jesus Christ is the only pathway, you need to be clear about that, but you need to do it with love, and you need to do it with humility. But we have to be clear. There is one creator. So as they're having this conversation, right, they're ready to sacrifice for Hermes and Zeus, and they're trying to like set them straight, but they can't even communicate. In come the bad guys, right? The same group of non-believing Jews that's kind of been following these guys around from area to area. They come into the area. They probably speak a little bit of this Lyconian language, and they start telling these guys, hey, not only are these guys not Zeus and Hermes, they're bad guys. You should hate these guys. So whatever they said, the mob that wants to worship them then turns into the mob that wants to kill them. They start grabbing stones, right? And they start throwing them at Paul and they, they stone him and they think he's dead and they drag his body outside of the town. So a lot of Christians argue about this. Was Paul dead or not, right? So they drug him out and a lot of Christians believe, and it's okay if you believe this, I don't think the scripture supports it, but um, it's okay if you believe this. Some people believe Paul got killed. They drug his body out. The, the, the other apostles laid hands on him, and he rose from the dead. Well, it doesn't say that. What we can assume, because I think Luke would have recorded it if Paul was raised from the dead a little bit more clearly, what we can assume happened is he was stoned. He was hit by rocks and knocked unconscious, because that's what happens when you get hit by rocks, Right? He was hit by rocks, knocked unconscious. They drug him out of the city, and later he came to, all right? That's what we can assume happened in that case, all right? So after they had preached the gospel in the town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter into the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So here's what happened. They left Lystra. They go to Derby, about a 60-mile trek. Now, when you're reading the Bible and you learn that these guys traveled 60 miles, they didn't like hop in a truck and drive 60 miles. They didn't hop on an airplane and like jet over somewhere. This is a hard 60 miles. So they go this 60 miles, they leave Lystra, they get into an area called Derby where it says they have tremendous success. They win over a ton of people. They make tons of followers of Jesus. Here's what's weird though about Luke writing this. Luke doesn't tell us anything about it. Well, they just left this city where everyone hated their guts, right? And wanted to kill them. They get into this other city, they win a lot of people, okay, and then they leave. Well, Luke, what the heck, man? Why didn't you tell us a little bit more about that? Why such little focus on Derby? 
Well, apparently the missionaries had great success, but Luke doesn't spend much time talking about it. Now, some people think the reason why Luke didn't focus on it that much is because he's going to talk about Derby later. They're going to do other missionary trips, and he'll get to it later. A lot of theologians and commentaries believe, though, that we see a side of Luke's humanity right here. The reason why Luke didn't write about the little country town, right, in the little rural area is because he didn't care that much. Now listen, this is important. We see something here. Let's just assume that Luke didn't write that much about this little small country town because he cared more about what was happening in the big cities. What we see from that is there's not a problem with the Bible. There's nothing wrong with what Luke has done. The Bible is perfect. Every single word is breathed by the Holy Spirit through the men that wrote the Bible. Nothing wrong with the Bible. But we're reminded that the authors of the Bible were human. We are reminded that they were not perfect. And that, guys, should give us hope, right? That the contributors, the authors of the Bible, the men and women who are mentioned in the Bible were like you and I, and God did amazing things with them. The other thing that it brings up is this. If we are not careful, you and I, we can focus so much on the majority that we will miss and forget the minority. And if we're not careful, we do the opposite of what Jesus did. Jesus is the good shepherd where it says in the Bible, we'll leave the majority in order to hunt down the minority and save them. And as followers of Christ, we can easily forget the forgettable. We can focus so much on doing something for one group of people that we forget other people. I remember there was a season of this church, we were doing so much for the poor and so much for the homeless that we almost became ambivalent towards people who were successful. And I don't know if you guys know this or not, rich people need Jesus too, right? And so we should minister to all kinds of people, not just people that got a bad hand in life, but people who have had tremendous success. They need the Lord as well. And the Bible is full of these people. Joseph of Arimathea was one of these people, and if it weren't for a rich, successful guy, there wouldn't have been a tomb to put Jesus in after he died. There's a reason why we hit all kinds of people and minister to all people. We must also remember rural areas. I remember when we were starting to talk about planting a church in Woodbury, I had more than several ministers and pastors come to me and say, why? That's not a booming area. That's not where people are moving to. Like, you're going to plant a church out there, but the city is dying. And I said, that's exactly right. The city is dying. Therefore, we need to insert some life into that, right? So we go out there and plant a church in this rural area. And I don't mean this to boast on me or Josh or anyone else, but we have about 15% of Woodbury that now comes to our church. About 400 people now are attending this church out there. But what that shows us, yeah, that's great. But what that shows us is we cannot forget that the, the kind of outlying areas around the bigger cities. This is kind of the mission of our church right now. And what's interesting is this, the majority of the Christian leaders in the New Testament came from small towns. The majority of them, right? We even get great music from small towns, John Cougar Mellencamp, right? So anyways, that's a terrible joke. Paul and Barnabas left these smaller towns though. He wrote a song called Small Town, just for those of you who don't know. Anyways, so they left these small towns and they started heading back through the cities and they started revisiting the bigger churches in these cities because they were going through immense persecution. One of the things that Paul says to these churches in the big cities is they kind of backtrack, right? They're going backwards now. 
He goes back to these churches that are suffering and he says, listen, be encouraged. It is necessary to go through many hardships to inherit the kingdom of God, to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, he did not mean that just because we suffer, we have earned salvation. We cannot earn salvation. Regardless of what we do, we cannot earn salvation. But when we are saved by grace through faith, we choose to take on a life that shares in the sufferings of Jesus until we get to heaven. Now, we shouldn't be discouraged by that. We shouldn't be afraid of that. We should find it an honor that we get to suffer for the name that suffered for us. We should find it as an honor that we get to do that, whatever that looks like. So they went to these, these new churches in these areas that they had already been. They're backtracking, and they start picking elders for the churches. Now, when it says elders, that means the pastors. That means the leaders. They start picking the leaders of the churches. Now, that's not the way it worked in the older, more established churches. It was more kind of a committee-based thing. They would bring a lot of people together, and they would have a, a, a big selection of who led the church. But when they were starting these new churches, the missionaries would go, and they'd say, you're the leader, you're the leader, you're the leader, and they would start this and move on, okay? Now, they're about to head back home. Here we go. They passed through Poseidia and came to Pamphylia. And after they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. Their trip was done. After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that, that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a considerable time with the disciples, that's the Christians, in Antioch. So the missionaries traveled back south. They went through a bunch of areas that they had already ministered to. They hopped on a boat and they started to head back, just like on that map, they started to head back across the Mediterranean to their hometown, Antioch, modern-day Turkey. Now, this first mission trip that they took was a 1,400-mile trip. And again, that's not in an airplane, right, to where you could do it in a day. They did it by land. They did it by sea. They walked a lot. It was a hard 14 mile, 1,400 miles. Took them almost two years. It was about a year and a half that it took them to do this first missionary trip. Now, when they get back to Antioch, this is before the days of like Facebook and Instagram, right? Where they're just like, hey, look, they're about to kill me back here, you know, taking a selfie or something. They couldn't do that. So, they, <laughs> it was dumb. So they, get, so they get back to Antioch and they have to debrief. Now look, again, at the risk of sounding sarcastic, but again, I, I left that in last year. At the risk of sounding sarcastic, they get back to Antioch, which was a city of a couple hundred thousand people, not too much bigger than our city. There was multiple congregations around Antioch, listen, but one church. And so when they got back to Antioch, all of the Christians, the church, multiple congregations, one church, they got back together and they didn't care about your congregation does this and mine does this and you guys look like that and we look like this. They just wanted to hear about the advancement of the kingdom of God. So they got together and they listened to the men give their testimony, okay? So now what? They just got off the road, right? They're back at home and the first objection or first objective of the first missionary trip was done. Their goal was to open the door of faith 
to non-Jews. Anyone who was not a Jew, the door is now open, right? So they're back home. They're going to spend about a year and a half. That's considerable time. That's what that means, about that time. About a year and a half with their church family. So now the hardworking missionaries, we're going to go into a different season. They just left a season of rest, and, or I'm sorry, the season of hard work and the season of, of very intense times to go into a season of rest. That doesn't mean laziness. They're not going to veg out and watch Netflix for a week at a time or play Xbox all the time. They were going to rest by hanging out with their family, hanging out with their friends. They're going to do some teaching. They're going to do some writing. This is where they think Paul wrote the book of Galatians, writing it back to the churches that they had just left. And so they go into a different season of their life. So let's talk about seasons. The first one I want to talk about is this one, work. Listen, if you want to do anything extraordinary in this life, and I'm not just talking about make a lot of money or build some kind of empire, that's not what I'm talking about. If you want to be the best husband you can be or wife you can be, if you want to be the best business owner or real estate agent or if you want to be the best student, whatever the case may be, if you want to be exceptional in this life, all of you in this room will go through a season of backbreaking work. All of you. I've never seen anything be built that's wonderful that didn't come after hard work. Work is something that we're called to do in the Bible, all of us. And we're called to do it with excellent excellence, to do it to the best of our abilities. I often laugh when some young Christian comes up and says, God has called me not to work. And I'm like, wow, you're the first one in the history of humanity. Because God wants us all to work. Even if you're a stay-at-home mom or a student and you're not getting paid for what you're doing, we are called to work. We are called to put our back into it. And so there are seasons when you're going to have to go the extra mile. There are going to be seasons where work is going to be extremely hard. Conditions are going to be extremely tough. Let me tell you about a season in my life briefly. I remember when we first started this church, I was a janitor. There was no work to be found. I have a degree in English, was a published author, all that kind of stuff. I could not find work to save my life. I picked up whatever work I could. I finally had a young man when our church was about, I don't know, 50 or 60 people say, hey, there's an opening at the Murfreesboro Athletic Club, third shift. We had just had our first child. She was still a little bitty baby. In fact, it's her ninth birthday today, but she was a little bitty baby. And so what I would do is I would work from 10 at night to six in the morning. I would get off at six. I would get home. My daughter would wake up at seven. I would watch my daughter from seven to 5.30. My wife would get home. I would sleep for three and a half hours and I'd go back and do it again. I did that for two years six days a week. And I would teach on the weekends. And I did that up until the time our church was about 300 people. I wasn't making a dime from the church. And so I remember that season of my life. It was tough. You know what I also remember about that season in my life? That's when I met Joe Swanson. That's who we're buying this building from. That's when I met a lot of real estate agents that helped me. Uh, actually, one of the real estate agents that, that I bought my last house from. That's where I'm, I met a lot of people that now come to this church who work in insurance and work in other things that have helped me along the way. God had me in that season for a purpose, for a reason. Was it tough? Heck yeah, it was tough. Learned a lot about myself during that time, but it was tough. Now, all of us are going to go through seasons of hard work. We must also go through seasons of rest. Rest is also commanded. I'm not talking about laziness, guys. There's a difference between rest and Sabbath and just flat-out laziness. 
Sabbath comes after work. Again, we see this modeled by God. God worked for six days and then he rested, it says in the book of Genesis. Do you know in the Old Testament, one of the Ten Commandments is honoring a Sabbath, honoring a time of rest. That's a Ten Commandment. Do you know what the penalty was for breaking that commandment in the Old Testament? Death. Culture cared so much about you resting at that time that they would kill you if you didn't. <laughs> Fascinating, right? So here's the thing about seasons of rest. If we don't rest well, we can't work well. If you're not getting poured into, mom's in the room. If you're not getting poured into, if you never have any time to rest, moms, you cannot be the mom that you need to be for your kids. You have to have times of being filled up, of resting. Dads, you cannot be the provider and the protector you need to be. You can't lead your family well unless you have times of rest. You can't be a good business owner. You'll burn yourself out. You can't be a good pastor. You can't be a good student. You have to have times where you have Sabbath. There are also seasons of being alone. You learn a lot about yourself when there's no one else there. There are seasons that are lonely, and there are times when God wants us to be in a season of loneliness. Even Jesus Christ went out into the wilderness alone to be tempted and to overcome the devil, right? But even though there are seasons of loneliness, listen, this is very important. There has to be seasons of intentional fellowship and intentional community. That means you can't blame the church if you lock your door and shut yourself off from everyone. You can't expect people to kick in your house and be like, you're going to hang out, right? We have to on purpose find people, good people. This doesn't mean drinking at the bar with your girlfriends. I mean finding some good people that sharpen you, right? The Bible says iron sharpens iron. That means you hang out with the sharpest tools you can possibly find. Find a community. We need seasons of that community. Now here's what's cool, guys. If we will do seasons of work well, and if we will do seasons of rest well, if we will do seasons of community and fellowship well, God will take us into a season where we are giving back. Seasons of creating new things, being productive, giving things away, right? To where if we, we allow God to pour into us when we're working hard, getting rejuvenated by rest, having good people around us, that we can get to a point to where our cup runs over, right? To where the Holy Spirit spills out of us and affects those around us. If we will do seasons well, God will use us to change other people's lives. You'll think of new ideas. You'll have creative and artistic dreams and thoughts. We'll be able to do something cool for the community around us. But here's what we have to remember. I have four different things, I think four, three or four things to tell you before we leave. The first one is this. Whatever season you are at, at right now, whatever season you are in the middle of right now, do not take it for granted. Some of you are saying, well, Corey, you just don't know. It's because I haven't lived at all in my 38 years, right? Let me tell you a season I was in four weeks ago, four weeks a month ago. If you didn't pick up on it from some of my sermons, I went back and watched the Advent service. I was like, man, I was depressing at that, right? <laughs> I was in a season four weeks ago where I didn't want to do this anymore. I had a conversation with my elders and I had a conversation with my staff. You can ask any of them. And I looked at them in the eyes, looked at my elders, and it wasn't like a, you know, like feel sorry for me moment. I, I didn't want to do this. I looked at my elders and I said, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I don't have anything. 
I don't, I don't like this. I'm not enjoying myself. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling angry at people. I want to get out of this. I talked to my staff about it. And of course, I talked to my wife about it, right? And my wife looks at me, and I'll tell you what, my wife is brilliant. And she says, Corey, maybe you have taken for granted why you're here, and maybe you have forgotten that God has given you everything you've ever wanted. So God taught me something during that season. I had forgotten how far God had brought me. God has answered everything I've ever asked from him. I asked God to give me two girls. I have two girls. This, this sounds crazy, and you can think I'm hokey or whatever. When we bought our last house, I said, God, I want a ranch-style house on a cul-de-sac. We live in a ranch-style house on a cul-de-sac. And so God has always been faithful. God, I want, a, I want a big church that can eventually plant more churches. Everything I've ever asked for, God has given me. He has provided for me. So here's what we need to learn to do. Instead of getting angry at God or angry at others, whatever season you are in, humble yourself, hit your knees, and say, God, what are you doing? God, show me. You're obviously trying to teach me something. God, open up my mind and let me download whatever you have. I don't want to take this for granted. God, like, show me. What are you trying to teach me? We also need to remember this. Someone needs to hear this, that the greatest things often come from the hardest times. The greatest generation that's ever lived that's still alive came after World War II. Through a war that rocked the entire world, we have what's called the greatest generation. The greatest things typically come from the hardest pressure, right? The only way to get gold is turn it up to a ridiculous heat level to get the impurities to come to the top. The only way that diamonds are created is by immense pressure over thousands and thousands of years. That it is through the hard times, if we will trust God, God will bring something amazing through them. And then the last thing you need to remember is this. And some of you may know it here, but I need you to feel it here. Listen, I've never heard God audibly speak to me. I've never heard his audible voice. But I bet a thousand times in the last nine years, I've been in prayer saying, God, what in the heck now? I had this elder leave or I had this person quit or these people are talking bad about me. I don't know where the money's gonna come from to do this. God, what are you doing? I don't understand. And I bet a thousand times over the last nine years, God has said, Corey, do you think I brought you all this way just to let you fail? Listen, listen, some of you though need to know that your father is a good father and he has not brought you to this place just to let you fail. What parent in this room would take your child somewhere with the intent of letting them fail and be embarrassed and not succeed? None of you. And you are not God. God is the perfect parent and he does not take us to a place there just to let us fail and fall on our faces. God loves you, and he wants to bring you through whatever season you are in into the next chapter, into the next season. He does it because he loves you, and he wants what's best for you, and he does it so all glory will go back to him. I don't know where you're at. Don't know where you're at. But if you humble yourself, hit your knees, look up to God and say, God, help me here. I don't understand. God, what do you want? Some of you in the middle of this fast, you need to be praying about some hard questions. Is this where I need to be? Is this what I need to do? 
and let God speak to you. I give you my word, if you are faithful to this fast and if you pray with purpose and if you pray clearly to God, God will give some of you some answers. He will give you some answers. Don't be discouraged about wherever you are right now. God has no intention for you to fail. Would you bow your heads with me? Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there will be men and women up here at the front to pray for you. If you need prayer for anything, listen, you don't have to know these men or women, but they love the Lord. They would love to pray for you. Whatever season you may be in, if you're in a season of work and it's tough, if you're in a season of rest but you don't know what to do next, if you're in a season of loneliness or trying to find a community, Maybe you're in a season of creativity, given out, and you need to know how to do that better, whatever the case may be. Let these men and women pray for you. There's also communion all the way around you. Everyone is welcome to take the communion as long as you ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. Now, here's what I want you to think of today if you take communion. Be reminded that you have a God, a perfect Father, that, that has not brought you to where you are just so you can fail. How do you know that? You know that because God gave his only son to die on a cross for you and I. And that bread and that juice is a reminder that Jesus Christ, his body was broken, his blood was shed because he loves us. Be reminded that we serve a God that has not brought you to where you are just so you can fail. Lord, we love you. God, I, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you so much, God, that you brought me out of the dark season I was in, God. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit works through the men and women in this room. I pray that you give them wisdom. I pray that you give them clarity. I pray, God, that you show them why they're where they're at right now and where they're going to go next. I pray, God, that people have enough courage to come and get prayed for. I pray that people will take communion and remember that you are a good father, a perfect father, a loving father. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's not a believer, I just pray that something today uh, intrigued them and, and struck a chord with them and that they'll just continue to search for the truth, God. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We lift you up, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Man, I love you guys to death. I'm very, very happy to be here. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.